0: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Football
1: is repaired. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye, and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football, and this week, Carl is off on a scouting trip, which means it's two up top, but what a duo it is. First up, I'm joined by Matthew. Matthew, I hope all is well. And how have you been this past week, my friend?
2: Uh, I've not been too bad. I want to say hello to you, but I feel after your personal news, I feel I should be saying why I, Daniel,
1: to you today. Um, Yeah, I've been pretty good. Yes, for the listeners out there who haven't heard the news, I'm moving to Newcastle at the end of the month. Now, it's not a move that I was hoping to be sloshing about in Saudi oil money. That's not the reason. There were some more pertinent reasons for it. So unfortunately, it's not Newcastle takeover based. There is more to life than football, he says. But yes, come uh, three weeks from now, was it four weeks from now? Four weeks from now, I'll be uh, in the tune doing this podcast. So hopefully the uh, the accent doesn't sort of seep in over the weeks and months to come. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. Who knows? But also, I digress because, of course, you're joined by Max. Max, how have you been this past week? Yeah, very well, thank you. What about you? Yeah, all good, mate. All good. Um, Well, to be honest, better than good after the week that Tottenham have had. I cannot complain at all. So, there'll be some Tottenham chat, but, I mean, we could go all 60 minutes with the amount of football they play. They seem to be playing every two days, quite literally. But we'll just sort of focus on their uh, massacre at Old Trafford that they dished out to Man United in a bit, because we've got some other bits to do first. And the first of those is the social media bits. So, to stop me talking to the Abyss once more, first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Stan Tracy, 1983 also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audioboom. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Also, I want to give a shout to Freelance Football Opportunities on Twitter, which is at FFOps. If you're a freelancer and looking for paid jobs in this current climate, they do an excellent weekly newsletter for a Patreon contribution of about three pounds. And as I've said before, I cannot recommend it enough. It's really helpful. There's so many sort of different facets to freelancer work at the moment anyway. So that's print, digital, videography, you name it, it's on there. So do check it out. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Max, I want to start with you this week because last week, your excellent rants Now, if you haven't heard that, go back to last week's episode and hear that because that was incredible. But you proclaim that football is dead. After what we've seen from the weekend, has it risen back from the ashes?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's been a Lazarus tale. And um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, and after my run last week, I'm kind of glad to be proved wrong in a way because I was so disillusioned with um, the current state of football in light of all the handball decisions that happened. (laughs) And then look what comes along and 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 strikes me back down but you know villa scoring seven against liverpool and and spurs scoring six against united it was absolutely fantastic it was on the craziest weeks uh weekends of premier league history maybe maybe ever and you think about the kind of seminal era defining results like um you know when it was eight two between uh united and arsenal and, um, and there were almost two, two, multiple of those this weekend, when often it's a kind of result that only happens once every five or ten years. So, yeah, it was it was astounding. And
1: I'm, I'm so glad to proclaim the, the revivication of the Premier League. Very good. Because, Matthew, by six o'clock on Sunday in our Twitter group that we now have, we were sort of saying, well, we know we're going to start the show. By nine o'clock, we've had to hot-foot it to the West Midlands. So we do start at Villa Park today because how on earth... Do Aston Villa put seven, now if this was the video printer, that would be seven in capital letters, past Liverpool. Um, I'll
2: get that to a second, but I just want to put, again, if we're going back to last week's pod, you said that in light of all the handballs and penalties things, that we could end up with a basketball score and just goals everywhere and how terrible that would be. I think this weekend has kind of disproved that theory, hasn't it? Because I think everyone loved the goal fest that was going on. So if that happens to be the case in future, then we'll just have to live with it and I think we'll be fine. Um, But back to your initial question, Aston Villa, I... I don't want to be one of these people that sort of takes away from the Aston Villa's performer. Aston Villa did great. Let's just put that to one side. They were better than Liverpool being bad. And I don't want Liverpool suffering to be the agenda. But can I just say this was more of a 3-2 victory than it was a 7. If you look at the amount of deflections that Liverpool, that Liverpool were on the receiving end of. So I don't want this to be... You know, again, I don't want this to be a Liverpool are collapsing. How can they challenge for the title when they're three points behind Everton at this stage? So on and so forth. But I think it wasn't really a true reflection of the result, if you want to put it that way. I don't think we're going to see this isn't the start of something where Liverpool are going to go on and concede seven every week. And at the same time, Aston Villa, whilst they have done a brilliant job and did great in the transfer window, I don't think this is going to turn into them being, you know, prime Barcelona sticking fives <laughs> and sixes past Alaves and Deportivo La Coruña every single week in the Liga. So I think let's just calm it down a little bit on both sides of the
1: argument. Yeah, I think from a Liverpool's point of view, it was a case of how's your luck. Similar to Brighton when they hit the woodwork, what, five times against Manchester United. You just have to sort of almost raise your hands and just laugh, which Klopp almost sort of did really. So... Yes, when you look at it from a pure goals-conceded, goals-scored point of view, it's a phenomenal result. But there is, I guess, a mitigating circumstance that there were so many deflections. It was just, you know, one of those freak days. That said, Max, that high line from Liverpool, we saw it with Southampton against Tottenham. Why aren't teams sort of saying to themselves, actually, this isn't working. Like, we've got to stop doing this. But they did, did they? They kept reverting to type and Villa just kept picking them off. Deflections or not.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're right. You're right. And a lot of the the problems they got themselves into were because they had that that suicidally high line. Um, and, and then, you know, Villa got into a lot of attacking positions. And yes, obviously, it's unlucky that um, you, Villa got all those deflections. And normally that would happen maybe three or four times across a season. You can see goals like that rather than all in the same game. But Villa were getting in those positions... Uh, where they were getting shots away under not much pressure, under minimal pressure, because of this high line. And what what I find interesting is that no one in the Liverpool team was 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 willing to 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 take the kind of tactical idea by the scruff of the neck and say, no, this isn't working. We need to change it. Eddie Jones, the the England rugby coach, uh, talks a lot about wanting decision makers in his team. You know, he he his whole idea of coaching is that he wants to make himself irrelevant. In the sense that he coaches and trains his players so well that they don't really need his input anymore because he's got 15 decision makers on the pitch regardless of position. And if things, are, and if things aren't going well, they have the, the wherewithal, the understanding and the heat of battle to change it. We saw like against Italy, I know this is a football pod so I won't too, <laughs> speak too much about rugby. But we saw when England played Italy and Italy did that strange ruck tactic and England had no idea what was going on, didn't really know what the rules were. It took until half time, um, you know, the coaches telling them what was happening and then telling them to change it before England changed their whole style and then eventually went on to win the game. And in that circumstance, England didn't have the decision makers on the pitch to realise it wasn't working and to change it. Similarly, Liverpool did not concede one or two and think, actually, maybe we should just drop 10, 20 yards deeper and... And just like Southampton didn't and kept getting punished, Liverpool kept getting punished. And I wonder if they'll keep that in future. And if they do and they get caught out again, will they change it mid-game?
1: Yeah, there's certainly an interesting blueprint which is starting to form between defence and attack across the Premier League. But if we stay with the Villa game, Max, and I'll stay with you also. Ollie Watkins, his transfer fee, I guess garnered a bit of derision when it was first announced. You thought, oh, hang on, how much? That said, you know, he's paid off a certain chunk of that transfer fee on Sunday after a hat-trick. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Dean Smith actually said, and he might he might have been
3: exaggerating just a little bit um, in, in the glow of, of the aftermath of the, of the Liverpool win, but he said, oh, his, his price tag is probably triple what it was, um, you know, when we paid that. And it was maybe a, a lot of money. You think about him paying the, the English player premium and the striker premium as well. So, an English striker premium is is a bit of a double whammy with regards to um maybe overpaying a little bit but ultimately villa needed a striker they tried um the young guy keenan davis at the end of last season they tried um ali samata who they've since farmed out on loan obviously wesley the brazilian they spent big on last season has been injured for a long time and might still be injured for a long time and if you think about relegation being worth what 100 200 million to a club if you go down that's the that's the kind of money you lose in the Premier League, you know, goals are the currency, strikers get you goals, and they, they absolutely needed a striker. So in, in terms of that, in that kind of context, I don't think they, they overpaid at all. He looks a really good player, um, and I'm just disappointed that Palace, who've had, you know, various levels of interest over the last two or three years, weren't able to get anything over the line because, yeah, he does look a really good player. It's
1: taken him a couple of games to get off the mark, but a hat-trick against, against the champions, what, what a story. So, Matthew, my next question is when commentators or me say the phrase paying off a huge chunk of his transfer fee, what do you reckon a single goal is worth? Does it need to be some form of sliding scale relative to the transfer fee itself? Chuck a figure at me. Um, I think
2: it's probably probably around two million per goal, depending per on, goal, right. depending on the, per goal, I would say. But let's also factor in this could be a completely meaningless signing if Aston Villa end up getting relegated. So you say it's a, it's a, you know, a chunk of the transfer fee. It should really be a chunk of the premier league fee that they get every year. Um, because that's really, that's really what you're aiming for. You know, that, that, you no, know, Oli Watkins' trick may have kept them up. So, in a sense, it's not paying back the thirty odd million that they got. It should be paying back the one hundred and twenty-five million, I think. The Sounds li- about right. Whatever the lo- whatever the lower number is for for facing for getting seventeenth in the league, that's probably the number you need to be looking at. I think that's a fair much, ass- of the, much 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 in the same way. You know, Gareth Bale's overhead kick against Liverpool. You know, it didn't pay back the transfer fee. It won whatever chunk of money Real Madrid received for winning the Champions League. that That's that's the analogy I think that we need to sort of start looking
1: at rather than the transfer fee. I like it. I like it. Good direction. So, Max, there's one theory that all these gold bonanzas are being played out because of the matches are not being played out in front of fans. How much of a modicum of truth do you think there is in that? Um, it's possible. It's possible. It's
3: obviously really difficult to... To tell because there are so many variables in in football and and obviously the the, the crowds and the home crowds and the home advantage is something that 's really difficult to 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 quantify on on an objective scale, but I think it must make a difference. Um, I think I saw someone someone said in our group that the the lack of crowds is making it seem a bit like a training exercise, and maybe defenders are kind of losing that 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 top percentile of of concentration that they get when you know the crowds behind them and and, and the, the, the atmosphere is kind of pulsing throughout the stadium and you can and you can feel the 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 nerves and the pressure and maybe that that slight um that slight sharpness that you get from your surroundings isn't there and you're more likely to treat it like a training game in which obviously there's not much pressure and people can see goals all the time. And so maybe that that lack of uh that lack of crowds uh in creating the match environment of you know the noise and pressure and and concentration maybe that is having a bit of an effect obviously it's uh it's really difficult to tell and it'll be interesting to see when the crowds are allowed back in even in small numbers whether that makes a difference to the
1: kind of score lines we've been seeing oh yeah i mean there's easy an analytical piece in all of this let's like say take the sample of matches with no fans take the sample afterwards direct comparisons and then we've got something to really build on at the moment this first sample is just sort of going and going and going really so Matthew with that in mind I know you posted the article in our now infamous Twitter group so anything to add on the point that was being made
2: no I think I think there is some element to it I know a lot of the talk in in the Fulham group that I was the that I'm a part of um it was the, it was the idea that when teams are basically passing the ball around the back, which is something foreign, you know, the foreign people do. We don't have that in our British game, We get the ball <laughs> up the pitch sort of thing. In that, in that sort of scenario, you, the crowd would sort of, you know, every, every crowd does this, you know, would get on the players back to, to get the ball forward rather than passing it back to the goalkeeper for the fifth time. So without that pressure of, you know, fans in there to sort of not tell you what to do because I was said earlier, you should have your own decision makers but the crowd can influence the game in in those tiny in those tiny in those tiny moments add that up over the the course of 90 minutes and you probably do get a little a little bit of that do i think this game is 7-2 when you know where if if it's a packed villa if it's a packed villa park probably not but at the same time i don't say it no, it's it's the same. Do man, do man United lose six one to Spurs when when it's a full Old Trafford? Well, given the way Man United are, probably. But but you get the point.
1: Yeah, but I guess also it's very hard to sort of say it's almost a moot argument because it's it's happened. It's in the history books now, so we can't really sort of replicate it with fans and say right Villa Liverpool go and play again, and this time the score actually counts. So you have got fans inside, so we sort of it's a, it's a great talking point, but it's almost sort of. For what purpose? With that in mind, Matthew, we have still got to do a podcast. So, can we also add to this debate that it's more down to, or at least some part two, that teams are still finding their fitness? And technically, we are still in pre-season. Dare I say, you know, this is the last week of pre-season with the international break, but that is the period we're in.
2: Yeah, there is there is some element to that. I think there. You say teams finding their feet. There are still some new signings um, being brought in. that have to have to adjust to things obviously some teams have done it done it better than others you know you know Aston Villa are in effect trying to bed in their new players with the likes of Ream Brewster for instance whereas Liverpool are basically the same team as they were last season so there is probably some element to it but I don't want I don't want to say it's a reason for every single crazy result result that we've
1: had so talking of goal fees, we need to go to the one earlier in the day on Sunday Max as a neutral in this one are you watching that game and carrying out the post mortem for Manchester United, or should you be praising a Tottenham for such a in, well an incredible attacking form, shall we say?
3: Yeah, Spurs were Spurs were super clinical. I, I, I mean, ultimately, it's a bit of both, really, because yeah. United did kind of capitulate a little bit, but at the same time, you don't want to you don't want to take away from from Tottenham because they scored some really nice goals. Uh, as a neutral, I was a little bit annoyed about the red card incident, not because I thought martial was done a desperate injustice uh per se but if you're going to treat that as a red card you have to also treat lamella's uh little little flick of his elbow or forearm into martial as a red card as well you know you've got to give it the same level of um the same level of punishment and if the ref looks at that and thinks oh it's just handbags you know six and one half a dozen and the other i'll let it go fine if you want to give both of them a yellow just give them a warning fine if you want to give both of them a red card for violent conduct, it is on the soft side, but OK, fine. But then for, to give a red card to one and, and nothing to the other, as far as I'm aware, it, it, it just seems a bit inconsistent. And I'm not really sure why why that was given. You know, it, Presumably, for, for the red card incident, VAR was consulted. But I don't know why they couldn't wind the tape back for half a second and see what Lamella did to, um, to provoke the situation. Ultimately, though, um, Martial can't really have any complaints. As soon as you put your hand in someone's face, it's a red. <laughs> Most times, you know, so it was a bit of a petulant reaction, um, but but and then that that kind of set up the whole thing. Obviously, you're a man down, but then the the defending was from United was was really really poor. Um, Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw in particular had um had pretty bad days. I think the BBC Sport um, little rating app where you can <laughs> where you can give players a rating between one and ten. I think they were both hovering at about one point. 1.1, 1. 1, 1. 1.2 um, on average, and that might have even been a little bit generous. They were both really poor, um, but Tottenham looked
1: really, really good. So I don't want to take it away from um, from Spurs at all. It's funny you should mention those BBC Sport ratings because I've noticed those and they do quite annoy me because it just sums up how overreactionary football fans are. Because in a standard set of match ratings, and if we take Man United as an example, yes, they were bad, but. At their absolute worst, you're probably going to be writing the column giving them fours and fives. Problem is, people go to the extreme end of the scale and start dishing out ones and twos, and then they'll start giving out nines and tens to every player who's just beaten them, that being Tottenham this week. There's sort of no real sort of frame of reference or, or middle ground, but I think that's just you know, where football fans are today. But that's this rant gone for now. So, Matthew, going back to United's defence. Heads up, sorry, heads gone was the uh, best way to describe it. So when you look at that shambolic offering at Old Trafford, I guess it makes perfect sense to sign Edison Cavani, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's a... Hang on, am I talking? Yes, I am talking. Um, yeah, it's a baffling one. Everyone, you know, you go back to the Paul Merson rant or point from a couple of years ago where he, where he points out how Harry Maguire is going to get exposed um, at Old Trafford, that was that was more or less the day he signed. So you think the Man United defense has been a problem for you know, the best part of a season now, and just and just over that. So why? they gonna thinks the problem is you know another forward, unless he thinks right we're not gonna solve this. There's no centre back out there that we can get. Our best chance is to try and score two and three every game and hope that De Gea can bail us out like he did like he did in the good old days. You know, winning every game 3-2, circa Keegan's entertainers of the 90s, sort of thing. That can really be the only rationale I can I can think of as to why you would buy a forward rather than... I mean, a very good forward, Edison Cavani in his prime, fantastic. But why you're focusing on that rather than any sort of defender is just doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, it's a very good theory. I didn't think of it like that, but it's a risky one, a strategy all the same. So, Max... That's not to say he's not a good player, as Matthews just said. I think we can all agree about that. Whether his bundle of league R goals is enough to sort of hold enough sway compared to Premier League performance, who knows. With that said, is it just a signing that smacks of desperation?
3: Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, he he is a good player and I don't want to get too caught up in, uh, you know, Woodward out, Glazers out, the, the fury really that, that Man United fans are feeling. Especially, I think, symbolically because... Uh, Excuse me, because Cavani was given the number seven shirt that uh, Man United fans had envisaged. Jaden Sancho would get, um, and most people are, are kind of viewing them as a as, as a like for like replacement. And oh, we couldn't get Sancho, so they they got Cavani on a free, and you know, no one wanted him, and all of this. He is a good player. He is a good player. He's got a really good history and pedigree uh, at national level and at and a domestic level, at club level um, of scoring a lot of goals. He's won a lot of trophies. He's a winner. Um, and people forget that last time Ibrahimovic came uh, on a on a free and 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 tore it up in Manchester. He did a really really good job there. Um, and he was even a couple of years older than Cavani is now. Um, I, you know they're different players. They're different players. You can say, well, you know we we wanted Sancho. Why didn't we get another winger? That's a fair point. But to say, oh, you only signed Cavani um, because because you couldn't get Sancho. Yeah, I don't think so. But. I think it was a little bit of desperation, not in terms of Sancho, just in terms of uh, of generally, because they wanted maybe an attacker, especially a wide player, hence their pursuit of Sancho. Now, they did get the two young guys. they got got um, Facundo Pellistri and they also got uh, Ahmad Traore. Um, forgive me if I've got those names wrong. Uh, but, but they have got two wide players in there. You imagine they're not going to be ready to, to go straight into the Premier League um, saying that Dan James got thrown into the side after just one season in the championship but you imagine those two those two youngsters will just go into the into the, the under 23 squad into the reserve squad and play uh, there for a couple of months and acclimatize um but
1: potentially there's a little bit of desperation in there yes so it begs the question matthew why have United not identified, or maybe they have identified, but not paid the money for defensive personnel that they really need? Yes, it's all very well getting these glamour names, your Sancho's, your Cavani's, etc., but it's always about vanity. So does this come down to the failings of Ed Woodward? Um, yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Although I'm trying to think, who are the centre backs
2: out there that you'd think, you know, that you know could improve Manchester United greatly? You, you know like like Virgil van Dijk did for Liverpool. I don't think there's any player out there that has a reasonable chance of moving to of moving to Manchester United. The best I can really think of is Soyuncu Shu at Leicester, but he's not really going to make a grand difference in the way that Virgil van Dijk did. Obviously Ed Woodward should take some blame because this this isn't a one transfer window problem. This is going back years of, you know, thinking Lindelof was good enough and thinking Baye was good enough and so on and so forth and still thinking Phil Jones has something about him rather than getting rid of him. I it is a Edward Ed Wood problem in a sense, but it also is a is a transfer market problem because there there isn't really a player out there for them for them to go and get.
1: Yeah, that's a fair statement. I guess that also comes down to the shortcomings of Harry Maguire because really he should have been their franchise defender with the money they spent. So you're sort of thinking, in theory, we've already got the big name that we should be looking on the level of Van Dijk, but the reality is he's nowhere near that level at the moment. Talking of levels though, Max, Edward Ed Wood, Jose Mourinho, and things don't get much sweeter for a former employee as you come back and oversee a 6-1 win on your previous turf. So does that result, and the magnitude of it, just put the rest of Tottenham's top four rivals, big six rivals, on alert now. Yeah, I think definitely it was a statement. It was definitely a
3: statement. And you'd be looking at that, um, at that Tottenham performance and thinking, damn, you know, we, we, need to <laughs> we need to watch out. Son came back from injury very, very, very quickly. Um, people weren't expecting him to be back so soon. And, and Kane and Son linked up really, really nicely, especially with the, uh, with the quick free kick. Um, and if they can stay fit for the whole season, which obviously they didn't manage to last season, I think they could do really well. And dombele is back on the side. And as a neutral, I said this to my Spurs supporting mate over the weekend, as a neutral, I'm honestly really pleased that dombele has managed to to, to sort things out and get back in the team. Mourinho looks like he's, um, he's starting him for, uh, and playing him for the full 90 a lot more often. He obviously trusts him a bit more. I don't know whether that's a mental thing, whether his his attitude has changed in training. Um, the sense I got from the Spurs documentary was that he was kind of trying his hardest but was maybe a little bit introverted, struggling to settle, obviously in a foreign country, um, away from from France and, and his family and friends for the first time and stuff like that, which people don't really uh, think about when, um, when you think about a player. You can't just drop them in a different country, different city and expect them to adapt straight away. But he seems to have got over that now. Um, as I say, I don't know if it's a mental thing or a physical thing. Whereas, you know, maybe now he's finally got the fitness that Mourinho wanted from him. But he looked really good, and with the addition of Hojbjerg just at the at the kind of base of their midfield, it allows their other two midfielders to 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 roam to roam a little bit freer. And Ndombé is one of those players you just want to let him off the leash and say go and do what you can do because obviously his ability is fantastic. You can just see it. From, from a single touch that he makes. You can see he's got the ability to, um, to pay back that, that, that club record fee that they paid him, for him. And, and yes, yeah, so I'm really pleased to see him doing well. And it will put a lot of the top four rivals on alert because Spurs completely took them
1: apart, even if they did have a man advantage. So Matthew, of course, Tottenham were beaten by Everton on the opening weekend of the season. And you could argue that defeat sparked them into life, not only on the pitch, but in the transfer market. However, I want to focus on the league leaders now and a certain player in particular. Matthew, are you ready?
2: There we yes, go.
1: Yes, there we go. Because the official Dominic Calvin Lewin kazoo is go. So, Matthew, I think we want it played every time he scores a goal this season. And on current form, there could be a lot of kazoo in this show.
2: Yeah, I may need to invest in a higher quality kazoo <laughs> or at least a, at least a number of them because I feel I'm going to get through them a lot. Listen, I... What what more could I say about Cavallone that I haven't already said? And he has been rightly rewarded with his England call up, um, and given the way that the, the rest of the squad has, um, let's just say, thinned out in, pe- in in recent days. I think we may be talking about that later. Yep. I think there is every single chance that he could get at least uh, England playing three games. Are they? I think he could easily play. I think he'd easily play in all three of them. Yep. I think if you go want to go on the players who are on form at the moment. Harry Kane probably gets the nod um, to start, but off the bench, certainly Calvin Loader is going to be an excellent option for Gareth Southgate to choose from. And it's just a testament to what not only what he's done, but Carlo Ancelotti, who's given them that little extra boost um, that he need that he needed, obviously, coaching uh, to get to get him
1: to this stage. So Max, his career high in terms of goals in the Premier League is thirteen. That was last season. He's almost halfway there already with six. Or well, this evidence, you're looking really for a shoeing of what, twenty, twenty-five goals. Yeah,
3: you are. You are. And and he looks like he could and he looks like he could get there. He he is a little bit of a streaky player. We saw last season he went on a really good run of goals and then uh post lockdown, um post project restart, forgive me, is um he, he kind of tailed off a little bit and, and I was one of those burned by that as a as a fantasy football manager. Um but so, you know, we'll see if we can maintain it over the course of the season. But definitely on the showings so far, he looks like he's capable of of producing those kind of returns. And he's got a really, uh, a much improved side behind him as well. He's obviously got Hammers Rodriguez. He's one of the most naturally gifted players in the league, a massive creative force, obviously Richarlison as well. The midfield behind him looks much more solid. He's obviously got the... The, the fullbacks, the marauding fullbacks, Luca Dinian and Chambers Coleman supplying him as well. So he could easily get 20 or 25. And to be honest, look, looking even at last season where he scored 13 goals, which is a pretty decent return in what was then a, a not-as-good Everton side, um, he was still maybe even number four or five striker choice behind Kane and Abraham and Ings and Callum Wilson and and potentially you know Rashford if you're playing him centrally. And he wasn't even he wasn't even considering as as being part of the squad. And you could say, well, now he's arguably challenging Kane to be the number one starting striker in the England team. And I'm really glad he's got called up and let's see what he can do.
1: Absolutely. So his goal was the opener against Brighton on Saturday as the Toffees ran out eventual 4-2 winners. And once again, it's more woe for Jordan Pickford. Now, with Carlo Ancelotti signing Robin Olsen on loan from Roma, there is at least competition for his place now, Matthew
2: yes and it'll be very interesting to see how he deals with it because you've got this international break where you would you think you think you'd still think that Jordan Pickford is probably going to be England's number 1 or at least you know for the for the competitive games i don't think he's lost the faith there but if he st- if that form from if the form from his club get from his club game shifts into the national side then i think Carlo Ancelotti's probably going to have that little bit more to think about and it's probably now would probably be the ideal time to wait. You know, when things when teams get back um, after after the squads break up and come back, that's probably the best time you'd think to get him integrated. That last couple of days before the before the next game, which I think is the Merseyside Derby, unless Correct. I'm mistaken. Yeah. So assuming Robert Olsen you know, gets back on the Wednesday, that Thursday Friday, get him get him used to his back four and his and all the routines and all that stuff, and then put him in. You think it's probably the right time. Much like people say, you know, the international break is the right time for managers to be sacked because it gives the new it gives the new manager, you know, a, a little bit of time to work on training ground and sort of stuff. I think that's pretty much the situation here for uh, for Jordan Pickford and Olsen.
1: So, Max, do you think Olsen will feature against Liverpool? Or is it a case of, to Pickford, look, this is last chance saloon now. You do this one more time, you can be replaced. Because before, he sort of got away with it because the option's... At or uh, if, we sh- well, should we say worse, really, now that's not the case? Oh, it's, it's a really tricky one. You know what? If I had to put
3: my, my, my neck on the line and, and get off the fence, I'd say, I think Awesome will start. Really? Maybe the fact that it's a Merseyside derby and, and super highly charged and, and, and everything that comes with that, maybe if it was any other game, he, he would, um he, he would have no qualms about throwing him in. But for the Merseyside derby, he may want to put Um, He may just want to keep Pickford for that one game and, you know, give Olsen a little bit of time, uh, more to settle in, even though he has got the international break. But the kind of things that that Ancelotti's been saying, how previously he said he he was, you know, he had full faith in Pickford, and then to sign someone on deadline day, presumably that wasn't in his plans before Pickford's pretty shoddy start to the season. And he used really similar language uh, about, Olsen coming in and Pickford than that that uh, Frank Lampard did about Edward Mendy coming in and he said oh you know it, it's going to be it's going to be competition competition between the keepers is important and that kind of thing and you could just say well he might just be upgrading the number 2 because as you say um Jonas Larsson and, and Jal Virginia who that who are the current backups are aren't really premier league ready and so pickford has, has 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 had a guaranteed place basically in goal for the last three or four years um but I think I think he will I think he will play Olsen. He knows that um, that Pickford's been poor this season, which has prompted him to go out and get someone on deadline day. I've seen Robin Olsen play a few times and he's looked really good. And and what better way to to get to give someone a, a chance and make someone a hero than 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 by blooding them in a Merseyside derby?
1: It might be a little bit risky, but I suspect Ancelotti will do it. So, Max, I'll stay with you because I know Sergio Romero was a name that was linked with the move to Everton, but that sort of fell short because of his wife. Do you want to allude on that a bit more? Yes, yeah. This was uh, this was a bit of an interesting uh,
3: story. So, Sergio Romero's uh, girlfriend, uh, basically, sorry, wife, wife rather than girlfriend, uh, went on Instagram and, and posted a message um, regarding the whole United transfer situation. I thought it was really interesting. I'll read it out. She said... Sergio Romero worked hard for his club. Last trophy they won, they lifted it with him. He helped the team reach four finals slash semifinals. And then he was left on the bench only to lose them all. It is time for them to return the opportunity and let him go. And then in all capitals, respect for once, four exclamation marks. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I know. It does raise uh, quite an interesting question because he's been a very... Um, loyal servant to them. Obviously, he's, he's highly paid, and I don't want to get the violins out with too much sympathy, but he, he he's arguably one of the best number two goalkeepers in the world. When he's come in for United, mistakes have been very rare, arguably much rarer than for, for David De Gea, and he's always looked really good when he's played, and people have thought he deserved more chances. Um, now, they've got you know, he served them loyally throughout that time. He's done a really good job whenever he's played. Now they've got Dean Henderson back from Sheffield United. They also have cover in Lee Grant as the kind of third choice goalkeeper. And i what what, what his wife seems to be saying is that Romero wanted the chance to to uh to, to say goodbye amicably and, and to go and get first team football somewhere else. And he definitely starred for Everton. He'd arguably starred for a lot of other teams in the Premier League. And He wanted that chance to go and play first team football. And even though United are laden down with keepers, um, they they haven't managed to sort something out. Now, obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of the deal itself. I don't know what Everton were offering. Maybe they made a bit of a derisory transfer offer. But his wife is obviously very annoyed um, that it hasn't worked out. Man United obviously don't have an obligation to sell him. You know, he's contracted to them. Uh, for a
1: certain amount of time. But, you know, maybe it would have been nice for them to work something out. What do you think? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Just as a, age do they really need him. Well, yes, he's a good goalkeeper, but with so many options that you stated, he's going to be much more surplus to requirements now. And a player of that quality, especially as a goalkeeper, your options are limited anyway in terms of minutes. So it's a bit unfair to sort of leave him beholden to Old Trafford. So really, I think it would have been nice for them to help facilitate a move to Everton. But stay with Everton and Pickford, Matthew, because... In an England capacity, I think he's number one at the moment because the theory is, well, he's never made that mistake for England, which is fair enough. But I know you won't care so much because you're Welsh, but is that not a a ticking time bomb waiting to happen?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I know you've been um, an advocate for uh, Nick Pope to take over the Take everything and what did you? What was your what was your phrase on Saturday? I don't care if he well this concedes is a, ten against
1: Newcastle. Yes, it's in my notes because um, I did. Yes, I hold my hands up on Saturday afternoon. Drink had been taken, but not much. But I still I still stand by it that I wouldn't care if Nick Pope conceded ten against Newcastle. I'd still put him to be number one over Pickford. Now, in fairness, he did his very best to concede ten on Saturday, so it sort of didn't hold much weight. But you know, in terms of England goalkeepers, Matthew surely there has to be a a switch because it is going to, you know, 2018 hero or not, you are sort of then fearing he's going to be 2021 villain.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the the fact that the first game is a friendly um, against Wales is is going to be interesting because it gives Southgate the chance to, to experiment that little bit, whether or not he goes with, you know, Pope in one half, Henderson in the second half, just to see what they can offer and then Pickford for the two competitive games. Or if Pope and or Henderson plays an absolute blinder in the friendly, because, you know, nothing to lose. Then he sticks him in for the games against Denmark and Belgium, I want to say. Um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how Southgate manages it. But, you know, as I said earlier, I think Pickford still holds the number one spot, but it will depend on whether or not he manages to leave his his bad form
1: behind at Goodison Park or whether he brings it to Wembley with him. And Max, talking of Dee Henderson is his inactivity going to be a bit of a problem now? Because in a season where there is a major tournament, you want to be playing as many minutes as possible. And again, as a goalkeeper, you know, you can only play one. So he's in a bind not only for club, but also for country. Does that sort of put him number three at the moment? And dare I say, if there is another emerging goalkeeper, his squad position is always also a threat.
3: Yeah, potentially, potentially. I do think uh, even if Dean Henderson only plays the cup games for United, I think he's still in... In England's three best goalkeepers and he should go but there's a school of thought that says well you should only take goalkeepers that are playing regularly you know week in week out in the league and have that match sharpness and I do have sympathy with that idea because it, it is massively important especially for a goalkeeper um, and, it, and it's not good to be to be out of practice when you're in that position um, but I think he is such a good keeper and, and, and he showed it last season and it's been proven this season that even though they've spent almost 20 million on Aaron Ramsdale, Sheffield United, they, they're they still conceding a lot more and and a lot of that is to do with um, uh, the centre-back Jack O'Connell not being around as well. But um, there has been a drop-off from Sheffield United and definitely Henderson was a big, big player for them last season. You can see by the difference uh, when he was there and, and now after he's left. And so even if he isn't isn't playing regularly in the league, um, and even if he's only playing the cups for United, I still think he's in the in the top three goalies for England. Um, however, if uh, Nick Pope is the only goalie of you know Pickford and, and Henderson and and Pope that, that's playing regularly, I think he probably gets the number one jersey.
1: So, talking of inactive, when it comes to England, they're gonna have three stars missing because of COVID breaches they are being Abraham Chilwell and Sancho now Matthew there's already no Bale or Ramsey in the clash for your lot so are you approaching apathy at the moment or are you looking forward to sticking one over the three lines uh, yeah there is that little bit of a sense because
2: I said um, a couple of days ago when Aaron Ramsey was um, basically ruled out of the England game for Juventus coronavirus reasons that I didn't care anyway we've got the Nations League against Ireland and Bulgaria uh, to deal with Ireland definitely, I don't know who the second game is, it's flanking me at the moment. Um, to deal with, so if he has to miss the England game, I really don't care. However, the more that the players are dropping like flies for England, because Sancho is out, Raheem Sterling is out, so that's really the two main, you know, wide attacking players for England out. There's just a little bit of me that's thinking, hang on, we could do this, lads. Even if it's without Bale and Ramsey, you'd think what's the attack what's the attacking threat? In, you know, no no Sterling, no Sancho. Yes, there's Harry Kane. But I know a lot of England fans have criticised the lack of creativity in midfield as well. The fact that there's no Phil Foden there, you know, it's a bit of a boring field. So, every every time I go, out thinking, we can do this, lads. Just get Kiefer Moore. Just bring him up to Kiefer Moore and let him bang him in. It's possible. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I'm certainly not going to be totally apathetic uh, towards it. I think it should still be a very interesting game, even if there are... You no know, casualties for one reason or another on both sides.
1: So, Max, from a protocol point of view, those three that are going to be missing against Wales, Wales, I've just mentioned. Obviously, there's going to be direct comparisons to Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood for their indiscretions in Iceland. So, with that in mind, should the trio above also be removed for all three matches coming up? Yeah, it's a difficult question. I think. Well, what what
3: what uh, what Abraham said is that it was a surprise party. Um, Organised without his knowledge, and so he's just coming home thinking that no- that, that nothing's that nothing's happening according to his own version of events. He's just coming home thinking nothing's happening, and then there are lots of people over the over the rule of six when he gets back, and he's kind of taking responsibility for it regardless. Um, the other two can't really fall back on that argument because they were going or organising it, and so they they were obviously more. More, you know, party to the details than than Abraham, He didn't know what what was happening because it was a surprise thing. The, the exact details, um, you know, it's difficult to know exactly who, who organized it and when. But in the context, especially in the context of the Foden and Greenwoods affair, and knowing that they are role models for people across the country, um, I think I think you, you've got to you've got to remove them for for a short amount of time, um, because it it's just it's just so. Phenomenally reckless. It's not, you know, having a a cigarette on the street or being pictured in a nightclub, which is itself in a, a little bit um, irresponsible. But you know, this is this is COVID nineteen. This is life and death. And I'm not saying that them having a party of seven or eight or however many people, ten people, is gonna is gonna kill dozens. But it it's it's the it's the attitude that that it shows. It's the it's the disregard for the rules, and, and it's the maybe encouragement that other people will get to think, well, if my favourite Premier League football is doing it, why can't I? Why can't I have a house party? Why can't I invite the seventh person? And that that is dangerous, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it's the health of the country. It's not, it's not a cigarette or laughing gas or, or alcohol or, you know, a drink in a nightclub. It's, it's, it's serious, so I think you do have to tr- treat that with the appropriate amount of, um, with the appropriate
1: seriousness. Well, this is it, because if you're, you know, the general public out there, football is already in a very privileged position at the moment to be allowed to play, fans or no fans. So that's not to say that football being played in the Premier League is above the law, but you don't want people who actually participate in the game to then be doing things that are above the law. So it needs to be sort of reined in, really. And with the precedent which has already been set by the indiscretions from Greenwood and Foden, you do have to sort of think, well... Why just one game? You know, surely the, the deterrent to any other player or anyone else sort of looking in should be saying, look, you know, if you step out of line, you're not welcome to this squad. And if that sort of meant, you know, a, a massive breach, which meant you missed Euro 2021, then so bit. Obviously, we're sort of reaching a bit. But I think you know, players do need to sort of be told, look, this is the current climate. You know, this is the lie of the land at the moment. If you don't put into step, then you can't play and represent the country. And as harsh as that may be, I think that's the direction it needs to go. So I think it's not quite wrapped knuckles because we sort of read that Southgate is really angry. I don't really can sort of visage Gareth Southgate being angry, but he has been. So in that sort of case, compared to Foden and Greenwood, it is a wrap the knuckles, but I think really they should have been missing out for the whole week. With that said, Matthew, Abraham and Chilwell did feature against Crystal Palace on Saturday before the party. And you'd have to say in the end, that was a relatively easy win for the Blues and one that they needed after an indifferent run of results.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, a lot of people have been tipping Chelsea to, you know, maybe challenge for the title, or, you know, at least take a step forward. And I think that was literally just what the case was on Saturday, just proving just how much better they are. than, you know, with no due, you know, with no disrespect to Max and his fine Crystal Palace side, or, or Roy Hodgson and his fine Crystal Palace side, the you know, quality just just does show. Now they're starting to gel together. You know, Chilwell's getting in getting into it, Tammy Abraham leading the line, even the likes of, you know, Werner and Havertz and all that lot, they're all finally starting to click and they're starting to show why people have, you know, quite rightly, put them in that, in that top tier of, you know, potentially challenging for the title. So I don't think it was any necessarily anything bad that like Crystal Palace did. I think this was just a, you know,
1: run of the, run of the mill sort of result. So Max, on the non-neutral point of view, where did it all go wrong on Saturday? You know, 1-0 at the break, 4-0 by full time, almost a level of capitulation after the interval
3: yeah yeah it was it was quite disappointing, and I thought we did pretty well um pretty well to, to get in at half time nil nil you know it was exactly the kind of job that we wanted to do and then five minutes after after the restart Sacco uh, makes a mistake basically doesn't clear it properly uh Chelsea score and the floodgates open a little bit, which is disappointing um the, the second goal some people say was was a sacco mistake as well, but I think it was just a really good jump from Kurt Zuma. Good cross, good header, fair enough. And then and then obviously the the penalties near the end as as we were tiring. I don't want to make excuses. Are I would argue our our entire first choice back line was out if you think Ferguson, uh, Cahill, Tompkins, Van Anhalt would probably be our starting uh back four when everyone's fit. Yeah, but as I said, I don't wanna make excuses. Chelsea were, were better than us. I will say with the penalties, there were on the soft side, not much contact um, for the first one. The second one was, was a penalty, in my opinion, more of a penalty, definitely. Um, there was a bit of a foul in the build-up, but as I say, I, I can't really nitpick because Chelsea were clear and deserved winners. Yeah, as I say, I don't make excuses. They were better than us. We weren't good. Um, but the the yeah the way we kind of dropped off towards the end of the game was a little bit alarming. We haven't had much rotation. We've got a few injuries at the moment, but. Um, it was a little bit alarming, but as as Matthew said, it's just realistically Chelsea are better than Palace. I don't need, you know you don't need to hear me say that, but um, yeah, their 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 quality showed in the end. There are a couple of gears above, and we won't be judged for this season on results at Stamford Bridge. We need to pick ourselves up and and go
1: again. Yeah, you're not going to be defined by that result last Saturday, are you? So, I mean, in the sort of if you sense the mini leagues and the setup of where you'll probably be mid table, that's not going to sort of. Dictate whether you stay up or go down. So I think you just brush yourself off. International break would be forgotten by, you know, in a week or so, and you go again after it. Later that day, though, we were treated to Bielsa versus Guardiola, part one of the season. Now, a great game to watch, but in terms of sort of goals, quite tame in comparison to what we saw the day after. That said, though, Matthew, Leeds are still living up to their mantle of entertainers in the sort of Kevin Keegan mold that you mentioned earlier. And if you look at their tactics, my word, talk about attacking overload.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I may have said in this podcast, but I've said since about January time that I felt the Leeds would be a, a comfortable team in the Premier League. I didn't quite, you know, expect them to go and score three, go score three at Anfield or keep Manchester City to to one effectively. But yeah, it just shows what a good manager could do because most of these players you wouldn't necessarily associate them with, you know, with a with a Premier League. Squad, Partic- particularly Patrick Bamford, who has, let's say, had his problems in the Premier League when it comes when it comes to scoring. I'm sure um, I'm sure Max will be able to testify to that. Um, but the fact that he's managed to turn this team into what it is now, into a team that you wouldn't necessarily argue would could finish in the top half top half of the table, it's it's just fantastic. And yeah, eh, eh, yeah. I I I'm, I'm literally speechless when it comes to when it comes when it comes to Leeds because even though I thought they would do well, I didn't think they they'd quite be doing this one. Well. I think if you're a you know neutral, everyone looks for their second side. You know the team that they always like to look out for. I think Leeds, with their style of play, will become a lot of people's second team just because they're such a fantastic one to watch.
1: Yeah, they're very easy on the eye. I think you know if you're looking at the games that are on in this sort of current phase at the moment, where every game is on. Like you say, you're looking down the list and thinking, OK, who Leeds are playing? That's the one I really want to be watching. The kind of the one you'd be underlining. But, you know, even further down the season where games will have to actually be picked on the basis of best choice, I think Leeds will be on telly more than they would be, say, sort of Southampton, West Brom, what have you. So, yeah, I think, you know, they are certainly earning their tag, as it were. Max Ruben Diaz, he made his Man City debut in the driving rain at Ellen Road. What did you make of his offering? And more importantly, how much concern will Pep have? Because that's only four points from the first nine on offer.
3: Yeah, it will be a little bit of a concern. They are without, obviously, their only two strikers in their whole squad. You could argue that's a, a problem born of their of their lack of cover up front. But it has been a bit of a concerning start. However, with the additions of Diaz and Ake, who provide a lot of much-needed cover at centre-back, Torres, who's going to be more cover um, out wide, um, I, th- I think they'll feel a little bit more comfortable that over the course of the season... Um, they'll they'll eventually get up to title challenges. Uh, as a centre back myself, obviously, I have very very uh, limited level. I thought Diaz was was quite good. You know, he, he he's obviously a good communicator. He was quite calm, quite composed, and in the kind of um, in the kind of Bielsa ball uh, chaos that 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 tend to characterise Leeds games. Um, in terms of you know the things being thrown at you, which are unlikely. Uh, to be thrown at you by by many other Premier League sides. I thought he coped pretty well, um, but it may be a concern for City that um, that they that they've done poorly so far. But I believe
1: that when they get back to their full strength team, it'll be it'll be pretty strong. Yeah, they'll kick into gear. There's no worry about that. But Matthew also in gear at the moment. A West Ham and David Moyes is showing that you really can operate a Premier League club via Zoom. Where on earth did that three 0 win over Leicester come from?
2: Yeah, I think we were talking earlier about teams, you know, some teams in pre-season, some teams are going to oh, up. Okay. I think West Ham are just lucky that they managed to hit two teams that are, you know, I was going to say no. I take that back because, let's see, you want beat Man City the other week. So maybe this is just, you know, one of these you know, freak results, as it were, because, you know, Wolves went and proved that you know back to normal uh, against against Fulham. But yeah, West Ham, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense because you think not even just on the pitch or the off the pitch. Problems that you think would you know surround a team like that and cause cause a few problems they're they're doing incredibly well incredibly well to over overcome it so yeah it's it's fascinating. I don't know whether or not we're going to get to the stage where David Moyes is going to be forced to do um. To, you know, like teams have bogey bogey teams. Whether or not West Ham is just you know, a bogey manager for David Moyes, and he's going to be forced to do to do Zoom calls every <laughs> single game. But it would be interesting. I think I think if if they come back from the if they come back from the international break, I think it'll be. And they lose their first game back, And it will zone. be interesting to see whether or not they send it back.
1: Yeah, just no, we don't need you. <laughs> Let Alan Irvine just take take over from here. Yes, he could have made a Freeze over back now, but uh, Max, in terms of West Ham, they they've scored sorry seven in the last two matches. Incredible, really, considering they're all unanswered as well. So with with that on the back of their bleak start to the season, everyone's thinking, oh God, you know, eight games down the road, they're going to have no points. That's not been the case, obviously, but as Matthew alluded to, there's still this real undercurrent of unrest between ball and fans, so the performances are sort of soothing it ever so slightly, but there's a bigger turmoil always overhanging, isn't there? yeah, yeah, and it feels like the West Ham
3: fans won't be happy until the the current owners aren't there anymore uh, and I don't want to compare it to to Newcastle because it's a slightly different situation but um but but the, the animosity towards the owners is is maybe slightly comparable to 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 Mike Ashley at Newcastle because there really is a lot of uh, a lot of anger about the, the the way the way things have been run about the the kind of prioritisation of um, pretty high risk um, high wage players who are over the hill. You think the likes of Nasri and Patrice Evra. Remember he was at West Ham for. A, for, for a while, and 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 arguably Wilshire as well. Even though Wilshire's is a bit younger, um, he obviously had his better days uh, years ago while he was at Arsenal. And it seems like they're kind of finally getting towards uh, bu- buying buying slightly younger players, buying buying players with with room to improve. And they're putting aside these um, you know these big reputation players, players they signed for a lot of money. You know people like Malenko, people like Felipe Anderson, um, and they're given a chance to play as basically based on merit and Jared Bowen, who, you know, wasn't, wasn't a free transfer. He was 15, 20 million pounds, I think. But, um, but for example, Yarmolenko is the, is the guy who's played in Europe. He's played in the champions league. He He's the one with a bit more history and, and, and pedigree behind him, but they've looked at him and they've said, you haven't been good enough. Bowen, who we've signed from the championship, he has been good enough. So we're going to play him. Um And, Similarly, up front, uh, Antonio, who's arguably not even naturally a striker, he's obviously played further back throughout his career. They've looked at Allaire, and who they bought for forty-five million, and 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 they've said, "You haven't been good enough up front, mate. We need to have Antonio up there." And I think that that kind of that meritocracy to to David Moyes' selections is really paying dividends. Um, they've also been a couple of little uh, positional positional tweaks. Fornals, who is quite a, quite, a, quite a gifted attacking midfielder who has been played out on the left previously. What they've actually done is played Masuaku out on the left. He's a naturally left-sided player. Not very good defender, so I wouldn't describe him as a left-back, but they're playing him a bit further forward, a bit more freedom, not, not as much defensive responsibility. They're playing a natural left-sided player on the left, and they're playing four centrally in his much more natural position. And basically, they're saying to their, to their big-name players, to their big reputation players, if you, don't, if you don't turn up on the pitch, we're not going to play you. And, 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 and you've seen that their the, the results have been rewarded um, by, that, by that kind of policy. The trouble is is that they're now obviously saddled with a lot of players who are on a lot of money. If you think about the players who started on the bench against Leicester, Yarmolenko, Anderson, Lanzini, Allaire, four attacking players who have brought in for a fair whack of money and who are going to be on pretty high wages, who are basically surplus to requirements. Um, given given the current team's performances. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of anger that, that people like Jack Wilshire were were paid so so much for so long um, without the contribution on the pitch and obviously the, all the promises the owners have made. But um, with all of that aside, with all of the turmoil and, and the, the rancor and the anger off the pitch, uh, on the pitch, that something finally seems to have clicked. And maybe West Ham are kind of creating a rod for their own backs here because you know they're not going to win every game 3-0 in the premier league when they eventually revert back to what is arguably their type and and maybe being kind of lower mid table 15th kind of position um their fans are and 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 the, and the coaching staff are going to say well if if that's what you can do against champions league level teams europe level teams and leicester and wolves beating them 3-0 4-0 why can't you do that every week why can't you be up there Um, And so they might have even made it a little bit more difficult for themselves because now fans and the manager knows that they're capable of playing like that against really good teams. Um, And so if they do go back to being a little bit leaky at the back and making silly mistakes um, and and going back to losing games, people will say, why can't you do it all the time?
1: Well, you're never going to get consistency out of West Ham, are you? But Fulham, you'd love a bit of consistency there, Matthew, because, well, actually you have been consistent, but in defeat. So I know you don't want anything ever bad said about Nuno, but we have some umbrage at the fact he must a 1-0 win over your lot on Sunday. Yeah, I think for some, Fulham are
2: just one of the most baffling teams in the league right now because our defensive pairing on Sunday was Tim Ream and Maxime Le Marchand, who were arguably our two worst defenders when we were in the Premier League last time round. So the fact that we managed to put them together and then keep one of the better sides in the division um, at bay for just one, and even then, it was it wasn't exactly the greatest of goals that they scored. Um, it just doesn't again just doesn't make much sense. Uh, we took a bit of a step forward in the in, in the fact that we only managed to concede one, but at the same time, it that game just showed how poor we are attacking wise because the chance that Bubakar Kamara had when it was uh, when it was one 0 could have equalised, mega one one, got our first point of the season but it just showed how much we rely on Alexandra Mitrovic and how we needed help. We need help from, for for him. If he's going to do, if we as a club rather are going to do anything this season, Um, we've obviously addressed that somewhat with the signing of Ruben Loftus cheek yesterday, who I think can play in that sort of second striker attacking midfield role and will be a bit of a boost when it comes to goal scoring. But my word was, it's still not ideal for us. And there's, Going to be a lot of work needed by Scott Parker on the training ground if we're going to get anything out of this season.
1: Right. Two matches left to do. Very little time, so I'll do them very, very quickly. Southampton, they're out of their early funk. They've now got back-to-back wins after back-to-back defeats. West Brom still only a point from now 12. Arsenal, edge to a win over Sheffield United. For Sheffield United, it's now seven straight defeats across both this start of the season and the end of last. Did someone say second season syndrome? We shall wait and see. Right, it's time to do the admin very quickly. And that means, first up, I need to thank Max. Max, a sterling performance as always. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Yeah, pleasure. See you next week. Top man. And Matthew, excellent work as always. I hope you'll be joining me next Tuesday. Yep, should be. Top man. Right, fantastic. Cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye.